Good morning. My name is Jim Grossman. I serve here as pastoral intern. Uh, the text for today is Mark 6, 30 through 44. If you would turn there with me, it's page 712 in the church Bibles. Verse 30, the apostles gathered around Jesus and reported to him all they had done and taught. Then, because so many people were coming and going that they did not even have a chance to eat, he said to them, Come with me by yourselves to a quiet place and get some rest. So they went away by themselves in a boat to a solitary place. But many who saw them leaving recognized them and ran on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. So he began teaching them many things. By this time it was late in the day, so his disciples came to him. This is a very remote place, they said. It's already very late. Send the people away so they can go to the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered, you give them something to eat. They said to him, that would take eight months of a man's wages. Are we to go and spend that much on bread and give it to them to eat? How many loaves do you have, he asked. Go and see. When they found out, they said five and two fish. Then Jesus directed them to have all the people sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups of hundreds and fifties. Taking the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke the loaves. Then he gave them to his disciples to set before the people. He also divided the two fish among them all. They all ate and were satisfied. And the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces of bread and fish. The number of men who had eaten was 5,000. Let's pray and ask God's help in understanding his word. Lord, Father, we pray and ask that you give us wisdom and understanding. Please meet us here today in looking at your word and speak to us through your scripture. We ask this in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Verse 30, the apostles gathered around Jesus and reported to him all they had done and taught. This is a continuation of verse 13, where the scene picks back up. Last week, we faded out from the scene of them preaching, driving out demons and healing the sick, over into a scene about Herod, John, and Herodias. And it's good to remember in that way that we have the capacity to be like Herod. We can take pride in our position and who we are, what we are, or the many good things that we do and can do, but that we shouldn't. We should stay humble. That is the place to live. James 4.6, Proverbs 3.34, Proverbs 16.5. God despises the proud but gives grace to the humble. For though the Lord is high, he regards the lowly, but the haughty he knows from afar. Psalm 138.6. One's pride will bring him low, but he who is lowly in spirit will obtain honor. Proverbs 29.23. Jesus said it like this. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Matthew 23.12. And of course, that was Herod. He refused to make himself low, to humble himself to what was obvious. He didn't believe it. He didn't behave it. And... We would do good to pay attention to that because part of being humbled is resting. Or maybe if I say it in an opposite way, it will make more sense. You really can't be all that humble if you're working like a dog 
in your own power to try and make things happen. Or maybe this way, you really can't be humble if you aren't willing to stop, to stop in the midst of chaos and rest. In the midst of chaos and war in Psalms 46.10, God says, be still and know that I am God. Before I move on from that thought line, just make a quick note of this. The disciples came back and reported all that they had done. And if you remember when I preached on that, they did these things by Jesus' power and Jesus' authority and not their own. So just hang on to that uh, in your minds for a bit because it can be easy to have a spiritual high to try and rest on that one-hit wonder and always go back to that one victory. I know I've been guilty of that. and So we can depend on our level of spirituality and, and try and rest on that. Okay, so the disciples had just preached, received food and shelter. They did amazing healings. Uh, They just came back from casting out demons. And if that wouldn't give you a sense of closeness to God, a a feeling of spiritual rightness, I'm not really sure what would. But that was hard work too. And so that thought line of stopping in chaos and this idea of working and having enough humility to stop sort of sits within or is at least juxtaposition to the framework of this idea of rest, which runs throughout the text. I don't know if you remember, I I asked you how difficult it might have been to walk from Deer River and then to Cohasset and then Grand Rapids and Coleraine. This time I'll maybe add Pengilly and then circle around to the Wabana area up around Highway 38 and then make a loop back to Deer River. That'd be about a 50-mile loop. And from Nazareth in chapter 6-1 to Gennesaret, where they were earlier in chapter 5-1, which is by the Sea of Galilee, um, it's about 20 miles away from Nazareth. And if you made a loop up around the edge of the Sea of Galilee and were to walk from town to town, that'd that'd be about a 50-mile loop as well. And I don't want to re-preach everything they did, but it was hard work, physically for sure. And then, then there was the burden of the job that they were given to preach. And the dynamics of staying in someone else's house as you traveled, eating meals from place to place and coming across those who were sick and having to tend to their needs and they healed them, also facing confrontation in their work, casting out demons. And so it was very exhausting and a lot of work. In verse 31, they reported all this that they had done and taught. And when they do, Jesus is very kind to them because so many people had been coming and going, they didn't even have a chance to eat. He said to them, come with me by yourselves to a quiet place and get some rest. John Charles Ryle was an English uh, evangelical Anglican bishop who was in ministry from 1840 to the 1900s. And he said about these words of Jesus here that they are full of tender consideration, that our Lord knows well that his servants are flesh as well as spirit and have bodies as well as souls. He knows that at best they have a treasure in earthen vessels and are themselves subject to many weaknesses. He shows them that he does not expect from them more than their bodily strength can do. He asks for what we can do and not for what we cannot do. Come to a quiet place, he says, and get some rest. These words are full of deep wisdom. Our Lord knows well that his servants must attend to their own souls as well as the souls of others. He knows that a constant attention to public work is apt to make us forget our own private soul business and that while we're taking care of the vineyards of others, we are in danger of neglecting our own. Song of Solomon 1.6, he reminds us that it is good for ministers to withdraw occasionally from public work and look within. 
come to a quiet place, he says. So they went away by themselves in a boat to a solitary place. Verse 32, that, that just sounds really nice, going away to rest with Jesus. And Pastor Joe uh, and I were talking about that idea of, of rest here being, being really big. And he was saying that it's like that old saying, all work and no play makes Jack a dull boy. But really, you can say it just makes him a nuisance. And many people are uncomfortable with rest. That sounds kind of strange to me, like who wouldn't want to rest? But then there is that tension between busyness and results and trying to find the happy medium of when you're far enough ahead that you can stop. And it's pretty American, really. We're, we're a really driven culture. You've got to go to work. You have all these things you have to do at night you're obligated to. And you better go see your friends. And your yard needs work. And your house needs fixing. And your driveway needs shoveling. And the kids need playing with. And you need a date night with your husband or wife or boyfriend or girlfriend. And maybe you need to take the dog for a walk. All the things of life that stack up, both that you have to do and that you want to do, you know, Monday are chores, Tuesday is dance night or car night or some special night, or Wednesday is church, Thursday you have a meeting, Friday you have plans with friends, Saturday you're doing housework or maybe busy visiting relatives, Sunday morning is church, then lunch, then home group, or maybe just some fun thing that you wanted to do. But before bed, Sunday night, you're thinking, and you think, I have to wake up and do this all over again tomorrow. And maybe you don't feel busy or you don't plan that kind of a schedule uh, maybe you're not one of those people, but there are many who do. And even for those who don't, life can start to get full. And when there's so much to do, rest can sound like nothing is getting done and it's, it's just a waste of time. And the whole idea of stopping and resting makes many people uncomfortable. But Jesus was not. He, Jesus was very comfortable with resting and he took his disciples and withdrew themselves away to a solitary place. This, this principle of Sabbath rest is one of practicality and necessity. Uh, for the physical earthen bodies, yes, we can't keep going without food and sleep. That, that much is obviously practical and necessary, necessary. But the principle applies to the spiritual person as well, that is, our spiritual being as well. We can't mentally and emotionally and psychologically excuse me, go on forever at the end of our livings. You know, it's, it's interesting. I was listening this week to a popular psychologist from the University of Toronto, and he was talking about being a psychologist. And what he was saying is that, um, you know, one of the things that's very interesting about being a psychologist is that you learn that if you're going to be a psychologist is that people are going to come to you with mental illnesses. And he said that's almost never true. People come to you because their lives are so darn complicated they cannot stay on top of them in any way that doesn't look like they're just going to get more complicated. And so then that causes symptoms. He said it's like this old idea of sort of a metaphor for genetic susceptibility. Take a balloon and, and blow it up beyond its tolerance, and it's going to blow out at the weakest point. And that's sort of what a gene genetic susceptibility is. If I just keep adding complexity on top of you, at some point you'll blow out at, at your weakest point. You know, you might become physiologically ill. Maybe you'll start drinking. Maybe you'll develop anxiety disorder. Maybe you'll get OCD. Maybe you'll get depressed. Whatever. There'll be something that's the weakest point. And if I just push, that's where you'll blow out. So, and so that's the mental illness. But those things, he said, almost never just happen. Sometimes, but not very often. People just usually have been hammered really hard, like two or three different ways, and then they collapse in the direction of their natural weakness. And 
I just found that really interesting and helpful because even the secular person recognizes stress and the need for rest. You know, you can, as they say, only burn the candle on both ends for so long, and that includes mentally and, and spiritually. If you've ever seen Lord of the Rings, it's easy to identify with Bilbo Baggins when he tells Gandalf, uh, I feel thin, sort of stretched, like, like butter scraped over too much bread. And the, the principle of Sabbath rest, the care of, of Jesus in this rest from hard work, work he commissions us to do and gives us power to do, this rest still needs to be taken regularly in, in solitude and a quiet place to get that regular rest that is needed. Now, before going on the boat, they didn't get a chance to eat, verse 31. So when they got on the boat, they got a little rest. But uh, verse 33, the place where they were going was no longer solitary because it had been overrun with people from all the towns who ran ahead on foot as, as they had heard about Jesus. Now, <clears throat> Jesus, when he landed, had compassion on these people. That's, that's point two. When he saw them, he had compassion on them. He wasn't disappointed that people had ran ahead and overran the place that had been solitary. He also didn't tell his disciples, you guys just wait on the boat and I'll take care of the crowd. And so there's some, some tension there in the type of rest that they had received. And the tension is, is overridden by compassion because these people were like sheep without a shepherd. And that's an interesting thing, I think, uh, to say about a group of people. It makes me wonder what that means or how it applies to them. Why, why are they sheep without a shepherd? And, you know, let's, let's think about that. Um, because in part, uh, Jesus answers that in his actions. Verse 34, after landing and getting off the boat, what did Jesus do? Well, the first thing, he saw the people. And when he did, he had compassion on them. Now, had compassion... In English, that's two words. In Greek, it's one. And it's helpful to know that because it wraps up the action of the word with its meaning. Instead of had as a past tense in English, a possible momentary feeling, you know, something that could be quick in passing, this this was different. This was a deep gut feeling. Maybe a better rendering in English is that when Jesus saw them, he was deeply moved with compassion. In the Greek, the definition is to be moved as to one's bowels, hence to be moved with compassion, have, have compassion. For the bowels were thought to be the seat of love and pity. <clears throat> if you remember, if you were here last week, remember Kids in the Kingdom, Joe talked about this last week to the kids, the idea of the mercy seat of God and this, this, this deep gut-level feeling not being just in your, your head or, or heart, but a whole body feeling, sort of an, a groan from your innermost part. And so this is the type of compassion Jesus has when he lands and sees the crowd. This, this crowd which had run ahead to see him. Maybe you could imagine being him and think about what the average person might, might uh, natural reaction might be to see a crowd that's running and eager to see you. It, it might impress the average person. Oh wow, they, they want to see me. Kind of reminds me of a rally, but anyways, if it was Herod, I mean, for instance, he probably would have been thrilled. Okay, so Jesus, why was he filled with and having this, this deep gut-level compassion for them? And, and when this happened, how did he respond? very next thing is that he began teaching. You know, he had compassion on them. It doesn't give a full description, him going through the crowds, um, loving on them and, and talking with them. It says he had compassion 
um, he, had, he had compassion on them by teaching them. So why this compassion? They had teachers of the law. They had scribes and Pharisees and Sadducees. And, and they were all teaching from the same word. They used the same scrolls. They had the same scriptures. But the teachers that they had gave a wrong message. They had a message of fear, a message that, you know, you've got to do a lot of things here. It was a works-based approach, really very pagan religion. Um, God needs your sacrifices. He needs your good works, so you better go do them. And, and instead of teaching atonement by sacrifices, they were teaching them about works that needed to be done. From Luke 11 and Matthew 23, And you experts in the law, woe to you, because you weigh men down with heavy burdens, but you yourselves will not lift a finger to lighten their load. Matthew 23, it continues, Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you pay tithe and mint of anise and cumin, and you have omitted the weightier matters of the law, judgment, and mercy. You keep locking people out of the kingdom of heaven. You shut the door of the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. This is why Jesus had compassion on them. Their teachers were teaching the small stuff, like like tithing, as if it were the biggest command that there was. You just need to do these 12 steps is kind of our modern self-help version of it. Do these 12 things, you're going to be okay. And, And the Pharisees, they had more than 12 steps. They had very lengthy lists, long pages of things that you had to do or not do to be right with God. And they had omitted the weightier matters of the law, judgment, and mercy. And those are the things that the people needed to hear, and those are the things that we need to hear. We need to hear about the law and judgment and mercy. And, and really, that's the gospel, isn't it? The law, you have sinned. Judgment, sin has a penalty. And mercy, that that penalty can be forgiven. That's mercy, repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Mercy is the forgiveness of God. I mean, what weightier thing can you imagine except forgiveness to have the most weighty thing that binds you down being lifted off of you there's a song it's it's kind of a folk song uh it's called maybe it's time and it describes a lot of pain and this one line in the song goes like this uh, there's an emptiness inside you and it's worse when you're alone and it feels so heavy now like you're carrying the weight of a stone, and maybe it's time, maybe it's time, maybe it's time you tell it you won't carry it anymore. It's a beautiful picture to see a weight lifted, to see a burdened person relieved, to see the very tired person resting. And Jesus has compassion on these people because nobody is telling them that. And their teachers aren't teaching mercy and repentance for the huge relief of forgiveness from the terrible weight of sin. And this is why Jesus had compassion on them, because they were like sheep without a shepherd. Instead of having a good shepherd, they had leaders that were burdening them down. Ezekiel 34, it's page 612 in the church Bibles, if you want to follow along. It's a pretty good picture of what kind of shepherds the people had. Then this message came to me from the Lord, son of man. This was addressed to Ezekiel. Prophesy against the shepherds, the leaders of Israel. Give them this message from the Sovereign Lord. What sorrow awaits you shepherds who feed yourselves instead of your flocks? Shouldn't shepherds feed their sheep? You drink the milk, wear the wool, and butcher the best animals, but you let your flocks starve. 
You have not taken care of the weak. You have not tended the sick or bound up the injured. You have not gone looking for those who have wandered away and are lost. Instead, you have ruled them with harshness and cruelty. Verse 5, so my sheep have been scattered without a shepherd, and they are easy prey for any wild animal. Verse 6, they have wandered through all the mountains and all the hills across the face of the earth, yet no one has gone to search for them. Verse 5 there, I wonder if that's not what Jesus was thinking of. So my sheep have been scattered without a shepherd. And Mark here, people who went to see Jesus are like sheep without a shepherd. Jesus obviously knew his father's word well, and when, when he saw them, he was deeply moved to compassion for the people by seeing them in this condition. Their greatest need was to be taught forgiveness is possible for them to receive. And that's our greatest need. Pastor Joe said it like this, the greatest need we have is the preaching of the Bible. The greatest need we have is the preaching of the Bible by gifted people who teach the Bible. And so compassion is instruction. That's worth repeating, that compassion is instruction. If you think about it, it makes a lot of sense. Most people have heard the saying, give a man a fish and he eats for a day. If you teach him to fish, then he'll eat for a lifetime. And Jesus here has compassion on them, and he meets their very first need. He teaches them. He teaches them, and he feeds them. He gives them what they came for to hear him, and he gives them more than what they came for. As we're about to see, he gives them a good meal. And the physical lesson was demonstrating the first and more important spiritual lesson. And so, kind of a mini-review before going on the boat. The disciples didn't get a chance to eat, verse 31, so then they got on the boat, they got a little bit of rest, a limited physical rest, but verse 33, the place where they were going was no longer solitary, and now the crowd was there, and Jesus' compassion had overridden their need for a more extended type of physical rest. So final point, true rest. To, To think about this rightly, we should think about the rest found not in the opening first point on your outline in the worship folder. That's a type of rest, a very loving care to meet a basic human need. That's physical rest. Remember I said Jesus wasn't uncomfortable with that type of rest either. So don't throw out point one, physical rest, for the point of sake. Point three, spiritual rest. Don't throw out rest, needed rest, Sabbath rest, physical rest, in favor of resting and forgiveness, a true eternal spiritual rest. Instead, let them work in harmony, knowing that one is temporary and for refreshment, needed and necessary and not to be neglected, and the other is eternal, true rest, rest in the truest, most complete and whole sense, rest that cannot be taken away. And that is what Jesus was trying to teach the disciples. If you would, look at verse 35 to 38 with me, please. The disciples came to him with their plan by this time, It was very late in the day, so the disciples came to him. This place is a remote place, they said, and it's already very late. Send the people away so that they can go to the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered, you give them something to eat. They said to him, that would take more than half a year's wages, in our our day about $27,000. Are we to go and spend that much on bread and give it to them to eat? How many loaves do you have, he asked. Go and see. When they found out, they said five and two fish. So start with verse 35. They state the obvious. This is a remote place and it's very late. 
And now, you know, that wouldn't really take any spiritual wisdom to discern that. that. That's just obvious, and anyone can see that. And sometimes we do that. And that's not always particularly bad all by itself. You know, Jesus, my car's in the shape, or I have some need to eat, and, and so every, everyone else here does too, and it's getting late. And you know, these are all things that the Father knows you need, and Jesus instructs us to pray for them for our daily bread. We have daily needs, and, and these are to point us to dependency on God. And so these things aren't necessarily bad all by themselves, but the attitude that goes with it is, is what's important. Verse, verse 36, they stated the obvious. And so here's the plan in, in command form, I might add. Send the people away so they can get something to eat. That's an imperative statement. In other words, they're really trying to tell him, trying to, trying to command him to do this. And you know, I wonder how often we do that. Okay, God, here's the situation. Look, obviously I need help with X, Y, Z in my life. Please fix it like this. Here's what I need. Here's my plan. Uh, can you please make that happen? And, uh, you know, here's my plan. Just bless it. And that's pretty much what the disciples were saying. And as people, we can be tempted to do this. And churches can be tempted to do this as well. You know, we have needs, things that need a plan. And so we make a plan, which seems like an obvious answer. And we take that plan to God and say, here, God bless us. And oftentimes, God says, new plan. Sometimes he's gracious, lets us continue in our sense of feeling right, but you don't have to go on very long in life to find out that, okay, this isn't working and I need a new plan. And Then maybe you hit a crisis and God says, new plan, let's do it my way. And you don't need to think of that in a, in a mean way either. Maybe sometimes we need a wake-up call, but you can think of God saying it like, uh, new plan, let's do it my way, because my way involves an incredible amount of compassion and good rest for you. So back in the text, verse 37 and 38, it, it almost kind of sounds like they're arguing. Send them away. No, you give them something to eat. Are you serious? That would take way more than we have. And even if we could, do you really expect us to go and spend that much money on just one dinner? End of verse 37. Are we really supposed to go and spend that much on bread and give it to them to eat? Verse 38, how many loaves do you have? Why don't you go and see? Look at Jesus' replies to their somewhat fairly rude-seeming behavior. No, you give them something to eat. He knows they can't. Uh, He then asks the obvious, how many do you have? And he instructs them to go and gather and find what they have, scrape together their very limited resources, which Jesus knows isn't going to be enough, but he sends them out to go and see. And that's a very important principle there. Jesus confronts them with a work that is beyond their human abilities and resources. He gives them a job to do which is beyond their human abilities and resources. The last meal that we saw was was a feast with Herod at his birthday party. Uh, Sort of the high people in the high street and there was nothing lacking. And now here we come to this meal and it's sort of the low street with people that maybe didn't plan ahead very well. And Jesus is showing us how God works, and that's the important principle. This is the way in which God works. He brings us to where we've reached the end of our hoarded resources, and that's when his grace grows greater. The hymn, He Giveth More Grace, is a good help here. He giveth more grace when the burdens grow greater. He sendeth more strength when the labors increase. To added afflictions, he addeth his mercy. To multiplied trials, he multiplied peace. 
When we have exhausted our store of endurance, when our strength has failed ere the day is half done, when we reach the end of our hoarded resources, our Father's full giving is only begun. It's when we reach the end of ourselves that, and admit that we can't do this work that is beyond us. That's the point when we're ready for God to be God. And that's what Jesus was trying to teach the disciples. The principle here is really very similar to the Old Testament stories. You, know, you have this impossibly small group fighting a very large army, and God says, I'll make sure you win. Now, remember with Gideon, he actually said, you need less men. It's a show of God's dramatic action when we're out of resources, so that the only thing that can be said is, wow, that's God working. And you know, we sort of like to plan that away. It's pretty uncomfortable to be in need and have to cry out for help and, and provision. We like to avoid that if we can. It's, it's pretty uncomfortable to sit in front of an army of 200, in front of an army of 10,000, and cry out for victory. It seems clear from the situation that all is lost. It's, it's an impossible task that's in front of me. I don't have what I need to do it. And, and, you know, we don't like that. We don't like to be brought to the end of ourselves. We sort of like to plan away the place where we'll be in great need. It's the human condition to plan away our need. I mean, for example, having an emergency fund makes perfect sense. It's a wise financial thing to do, but not everybody can do that. And money was never meant to make us feel safe. But one of the reasons that we'd like to do it, it goes beyond just being practical. We like it because it makes us feel safe. And you know, it's not bad or wrong to do smart things like that, but there can be a danger in that that we should be careful of because when it becomes the place where we draw our sense of security from, then we don't have to feel dependent on anybody. And that's part of the human condition to plan that away, to plan away being dependent. We don't like to be weak. We don't like to be in front of a task that seems impossible. We'll do whatever we can to avoid that. But the Bible shows us over and over again that that is where we need to be. We need to be in a place where we can see the sufficiency of God before we can rest in the sufficiency of God. So we see from this story that he shows us our inadequacy so that he can show us his sufficiency. We have to learn to live in a state of dependency. And that's not the human way. The human way is to plan away dependency. You, you need to be independent, says the world. You need to fend for yourself. In the world, it's, it's every man for himself and the devil take the hindmost. But not with Christ, not with God. He shows us our weakness and he shows us our inadequacy. Not, not to be mean to us, but to show us just how well he's going to take care of us to show us his sufficiency and where we can find full rest. And that, this is the gospel. He shows us uh, <clears throat> our need first. When we're converted, before we're converted, first he shows us our sin, and then he shows us our Savior. The scriptures say that, that his kindness leads us to repentance, and it's, it's very kind to teach this. It's very kind of Jesus to bring the disciples to the end of themselves. And then... Jesus is very kind to the crowds. Not only did he show compassion by meeting their greatest need and teaching them, he also fed them. And they all ate and were satisfied, and there were leftovers. Verse 39 is just like Psalms 23. He makes us to lie down in green pastures and leads us by still waters, renewing our strength, leading us in good paths, preparing a feast for us, 
and making the cup run over. And verse 41 is also has such beautiful imagery to it. Read it, and what does it sound like to you? It sounds like communion, and I don't think that the first readers would have missed this post-resurrection of Christ to see this meal and read of Christ looking up to heaven, giving thanks and breaking the bread. It's a, it's a picture of God providing a good meal and so much more in the supper, proclaiming his death until he comes. And, and that is everything to us. We share in his death and in his resurrection. And in this section of scripture, Jesus was saying, I'm not bound by what you are. He says, listen to me. Sit down and rest. I'm going to be so good to you. You see, it's usually the strategy of God to bring us to the end of our resources so we can see his power and say, like Psalm 118.23, this is God's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. There's a beautiful hymn that Pastor Joe shared with me called, Got Any Rivers? Got any rivers you think are uncrossable? Got any mountains you can't tunnel through? God specializes in things thought impossible and the things others cannot do. He shows us our weakness, not to frighten us, but to show us our inadequacy. The things thought impossible, the things that by others cannot be done, he shows us these in order to show us that he can do them beyond what we can even think, and he is sufficient for every need. That rest, true rest, it's not found in a mere break from the normal rhythm of things. But that true rest is resting in the sufficiency of what Christ has done for us on the cross. That the normal rhythm of things for us in coming to Christ is to find peace that transcends understanding, to live dependently on God, and to rest in his sufficiency at the foot of the cross. We'll pray and then you'll be dismissed. Lord, we pray and we come to you. There's some of us who are bent is to just keep going and avoid rest. And there's some of us who we look for those breaks and those rests and, and we, we need your true rest. We need to rest in the sufficiency of your sacrifice on the cross to cover our sins. I pray that, that you would give us compassion and teach us this. I ask that you would teach us this as, uh, throughout our week. Uh, today as we leave here, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, the rest, the rest of this week uh, as we go, I ask that you would show us great compassion and teach us to rest in you and in your mercy and in your grace. The the greatest weight that could ever be lifted is to have the weight of our sin forgiven. We ask that you would help us to show compassion to others in teaching that. Pray that you would uh, bind our wandering hearts to you as as you teach us uh, what we need to learn from you ask this all these things in the name of your son Jesus amen